It's always a wonderful thing to come together, of course, and offer our worship to God. And we're thankful today for not only our regular membership, but our visitors who've come our way. We hope each one not only has a time of edification and encouragement, that we each can be able to leave in such a way that we can say, it's been good that we were able to be here. Certainly among those things announced, we have many things taking place and going on. We do want to continue to remember all those on our sick list and those, of course, who would very much benefit from our prayers. The fierceness of God's wrath. The title I've given to the lesson today is drawn from some of those words that were just read to us from the 19th chapter of Revelation. As you and I reflect on that book of Revelation, it is a book filled with imagery. We can oftentimes imagine that which takes place. And when we arrive at chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22, we are given this impression. We see in thunderous character the great Lamb of God who rides on the white horse. He wears that vesture that declares He is the great one indeed. And He takes vengeance upon those who choose to be disobedient and unfaithful. And in verse number nine, verse 15 again it says, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he, shall, he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. It's one thing to have wrath. It's another thing to have fierce wrath. And a verse like this one not only describes the wrath and let's say the anger of God, but an extreme anger of God. Today, why don't we devote at least a few moments studying and reflecting upon this because it has so much to encourage us. This next slide begins our discussion like this. It's rather common, isn't it? And perhaps you and I are accustomed to envisioning, thinking about and even pondering God in terms of His compassion, in terms of that extension of His mercy. But yet this verse that you and I just read reflected upon not just wrath, but fierce wrath. How do we put these two concepts together? And how do we do that in a way that, again, can be so very helpful so meaningful to you and to me as we live a life of faithfulness. I would point out about the middle of that slide, it is this very idea that has been at least one major reason as to why the doctrine, the mention, if you please, of hell is such that it's almost absent. You hear very little about it. Well, why don't you and I attempt to remedy that, at least in our thinking this morning, ever keeping that principle before us, because that, as we'll learn today, is ultimately the image and the reality of the final wrath of God and how fierce it's going to be. As we begin that study, this next slide takes us into this image, this picture. There are many references in the Bible to the wrath of God. I have selected several of them with the hope that as we think about each one of them in turn, it will in fact put in our heart and mind an irreplaceable truth. Our God is a God of wrath. On many occasions His anger has been kindled. Let's begin that discussion like this. In Ezekiel 8 verse number 12, 
On that occasion, the children of Israel had, of course, chosen to behave and act in various ways. And on that occasion, God stated, this is what they're thinking. They were under the supposition that God doesn't see us. And so although they were guilty of error and sin, they thought He would overlook it. They presupposed that He would not judge on behalf of it. The Lord seeth us not, they said. Of course, they soon were to realize very powerfully that that wasn't so. They would find themselves in captivity. And in fact, in Ezekiel's day, they were already suffering beneath that load. And so that thought that their previous individuals had had just simply wasn't so. But in addition to that, in Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, aren't we taught very clearly that the very ways of God, His ways and His thoughts are far above yours and mine. And therefore, it would not be wise for you and I to enforce upon Him our verdict of justice or our verdict of propriety. His way is always right. And although on occasion that might go against that which you and I would perceive to be the thing that's more equitable and fair, what you and I think about it makes no difference. When you and I add to that, Hosea 9, verse number 9. The first of those minor prophets, at least occurring in our Bible, is one wherein this verse is mentioned. God specifically said, I will visit for their iniquities. Now that word visit means He will bring consequences, restitution if you please, for those choices and the actions that the children of Israel were in the process of committing. God doesn't forget them. When you and I add to all those things, these appreciations, we're getting an image so far that God takes sin, of course, seriously. And in regard to Israel's sins, He remembered those matters. To give you some examples of them, I have chosen several. Let's look at them one by one. First of all, in Deuteronomy 29 verse 23, I realize that this now was centuries after the actual events had happened relative to Sodom and Gomorrah, but the inspired writer pointed this out. What is it that happened? Well, you and I know that fire and brimstone came from heaven and consumed those cities, but why did it happen? Moses later in Deuteronomy 29 would say it was because of the fierceness of God's anger. Now, as you and I think then, on that occasion, here were cities choosing the population of which to live in those ungodly ways. It included homosexuality, but there were many other sins there as well. There, were dis there was dishonesty. There was hurtfulness. There was a lack of consideration of the lot of humanity. God said, because of the fierceness of my anger, my wrath, you and I notice what happened. Already in that first example, you'll notice God's wrath led to the destruction of some things and the destruction of a lot of people. Now, they had had the opportunities to appreciate the message of God, but they had chosen to give it no heed. Keeping that one in mind, look at Numbers 11, verses 1 and following. On this instance, now we aren't talking about those merely that were heathens anymore. This is the people of God. They had been brought out of Egyptian captivity. 
they had journeyed at least a little distance in that wilderness and they had arrived at this location and they began to complain. They weren't pleased or satisfied with various and sundry things, not the least of which was this manna. I'm tired of manna. God said, I've heard enough of this. The text says his anger was kindled. 3,000 of them died. Now you'll notice there was something about his anger, the fierceness of it that raged and boiled within him. Our God, you see, was a God who manifested anger. And when these people to whom he had been so good, and he had in fact shared with such great blessings, and they were unthankful, ungrateful, the text says that his anger was kindled. You, can be, you and I can begin to see an element of fierceness in that which took place. Later on in verse 33 of the same chapter, it specifically says there that that fierceness was kindled to the degree to which many of them suffered great consequences as the fire of God not only raged in the outskirts of the camp, but on that occasion, many of them were consumed in light of their eating too much of that quail in an attitude that wasn't right. The next example is this one. Now it's not just the children of Israel in general. It's Moses' own sister and brother. Miriam and Aaron, as chapter 12 of that book opens, isn't it true that they had this idea in mind? Moses, you're not the only one that's holy. We ought to enjoy some of the same characteristic matters of respect that you have. You'll notice that one more time... God's anger was kindled. Here were two who should have known the greatness of God and appreciated His system of presentation. Moses is the one I've selected. He is the one I've chosen. And you'll notice in verse number 9, God afflicted Miriam with leprosy on this occasion. Question, was His anger kindled? And did it have consequences? It certainly did. The next example is this one. So far as we have looked at each one of these, they are bringing us to Numbers 25, beginning in verse 1. The children of Israel are now somewhat even more forward in their Old Testament history. And by this time, they again are in the very place of Shittim, which will be their last place of encampment before they cross the Jordan many years later. But isn't it fascinating that they began to behave in ways including fornication... And the text says something in verse number 2 about God's anger. His anger was kindled again. That word kindle means to become hot. You and I know in the wintertime what it's like to stoke a fire. Oh, you put some wood in order and you'll use a poker and stoke it so that oxygen and air and things can provide to it and the fire is stoked. It becomes hot. That's what the Hebrew word means in these verses. God's anger was stoked. Notice that here again were His people, and they were choosing some things of action and activity that greatly bothered God to the point that there were going to be consequences. May I direct your attention to the death of a rather large number. 24,000 Israelites died. 
Now, earlier, we've seen consequences in light of all of these occurrences. At Sodom and Gomorrah, multitudes died. We don't know what the population of Sodom and Gomorrah was, but it certainly appears to have been substantial. Miriam was afflicted with leprosy. Lots of the children of Israel died, not only on the previous occasion, but on this one. It's easy for some in our world to see a great deal of difficulty in this. How could a loving God behave like this? How could a God of mercy and compassion behave like this? One thing it's easy to overlook and forget, this God that you and I appreciate and love is a God whose anger can be stoked. His anger can be kindled and His wrath can become hot. You and I can begin to see that when it does... He has already extended to the human family opportunities and people had heeded them not. Let's add to that this one. In Numbers 32, verse number 13, you and I remember this saga took place not long after that fateful scene at Mount Sinai. Ten of the spies, in fact, basically had said, we can't take that land. God was angry. This people should have believed in Him. They should have had faith, confidence in Him. They should have been boldly defiant in regard to their confidence in His way. And yet all it took was ten men to say, we can't take that land. And the people followed the ten and God became angry. We all remember what His sentence and what His verdict was. To this generation, your carcasses will in fact be strewn across the wilderness of sin and you will not see that land. I'm going to take a better generation than you into it. One more time, God's anger had become hot and the sentence of death had become the reality. I mention these examples so far to plant this seed of reality in our heart that when God's anger had become hot... The consequences were often very, very dire. And yet, more examples are yet to come. Let's transition near the bottom of that slide and notice in Judges chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, one more time the fierceness of God's wrath was mentioned, and one more time we see something notable. God's people by this point, they had already entered the land of promise, the land of Canaan, and they had been there a little while as Joshua overruled a time of peace and prosperity. But Joshua died and the people became unfaithful. The text, you may notice, specifically mentions they started worshiping Baal and Ashtaroth and various and sundry other gods and God's anger was kindled. The verses that follow, he turned them over into captivity. Captivity to these foreign oppressors. Wouldn't it be fair to say that when God's anger was kindled, it didn't work out very well for humanity, for those who were the subjects of that wrath? It was dire. It was hurtful. Often death was the, was the consequence. But you'll notice that one final set of verses on that slide is this one. As you proceed forward in Old Testament history, we come to another time when the people of God chose to do what was not right. You and I often call it the Babylonian captivity. 
God had sent them His prophets. He had encouraged them to repent. He had encouraged them to be faithful and true. He had, in fact, given them all the means necessary by virtue of His Word and the message of those prophets. And generation after generation had neglected it, overlooked it, failed to heed it, and they had lived in a way that wasn't pleasing to God. And so in Jeremiah 12, verse 13, and Jeremiah 52, mention is made about the fact that you are headed to Babylon in captivity because God's wrath has become fierce. Well, one more time, you and I know how it worked for the people who were the subjects of that wrath. They were hauled off from their homeland. Many of them were killed and slaughtered. And they were forced to live in a foreign place with which they were not happy. It wasn't a pleasant experience. No wonder in Lamentations 4.11, sometimes called the funeral dirge of the Old Testament, here was the prophet Jeremiah who was watching over the city of Jerusalem as the people were forcibly taken by the Babylonians. And he cried tears of regret. And he said, you know why this happened, don't you? The fierceness of God's wrath. This is what happens if you neglect God. One last verse in Zechariah 7 verse 12. Not far from the end of the Old Testament gives us a dramatic picture of the wonderful God we serve, but in the language of the fierceness of His presentation. All of these examples, as you'll notice at the top of this slide, highlighted Old Testament. I'm sure all of us are exceedingly intrigued to wonder about the New Testament. Let's take a few moments and reflect upon that as well, and then put this lesson together. God's wrath, as you and I have seen it in the Old Testament, gave us a set of dramatic images of this God and the wrath that He often brought upon those situations and circumstances and those peoples. As you and I turn the page into the New Testament, look at some of these presentations, or at least reflect upon them with me. And let's begin with this one. In Romans 6 verse 23, a verse that's probably the most well-known in all the book of Romans. The wages of sin is death. Now, as you and I have often noted, that word wages has reference to that which is the absolute consequence. This is the inevitable result of sin. Sin left to itself. Sin without repentance. Sin without any means whereby that sin is overwhelmed and covered, it leads invariably every time to death. Now, death is not the most pleasant thought, I'm sure, to most any of us. We don't enjoy the thought of our loved ones passing on or ourselves. But may I say that the death under discussion here is a much deeper thing than that. It's one thing to go to the funeral home, and you and I have all been there many times. The wages of sin. The word death, as it appears in the Bible, at the most fundamental basic level, identifies separation. That's the basic thrust, the basic meaning behind its, its utility and its appearance. 
And you and I know that when it comes to physical death, indeed, when the Spirit departs the body, James 2.26, the body is said to be dead. Fair enough. But the wages of sin is death. Sin makes separation, doesn't it? Separation from God. Separation from His holy nature. Separation from His purity. Separation from the fullness of His blessings. The deepest and grandest of them at least. Separation. Well, you and I noticed in the Old Testament when individuals chose to look lightly upon that separation and live in it and proceed in it, finally God's wrath became kindled in light of that separation and He acted toward them in a way that was with judgment. In the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. And later in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, these ideas are discussed like this. As God is described, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. There it is again. This inevitable conclusion, consequence, and reality concerning sin and its progression to death. So already we're beginning to see there is a judgment that shall be an inevitable matter touching those for whom sin has never been taken care of. Look at the next one in 1 Peter 2.24, followed up with Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6. In that 1 Peter passage we have this dramatic presentation in which Peter makes reference to the suffering of those of that day. And he points out that if you suffer for doing what's wrong, don't be too concerned about it in the sense that it ought not be surprising. But if you suffer for doing what's right, if you as a Christian give your life to doing what's right and yet you still suffer, don't be surprised at that either because that's what Jesus did. There was never any guile in His mouth. And yet, they nailed Him to a cross and He was perfect. So don't you be alarmed if you suffer being dedicated to Him in the midst of a world that is under the rulership of the devil. But in that context, notice the way in which that description is presented. Here was the fierceness of God's wrath at sin. Look at what happened. Look at what happened to Jesus. Sin caused Him to have to endure that. Not His sin, but mine and yours. The way He was scourged. The way He was flogged. The way He had nails driven into His hands and feet. The way that they wagged their heads at Him and so insulted Him and reviled Him. That's an image, a picture of the enormity of sin. It's difficult for you and me to read Hebrews 5 verses 8 and 9 without that kind of image coming to mind. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. It says he learned obedience. When you think of the cross, what do you think about? 
Oh, it was a horrific scene, no doubt. Put yourself, though, on the cross, just as I should put myself there in my mind's eye. That ought to have been me. And it ought to have been you. He took my place. My sins were hanging on that cross. So were yours. The lies I may have told. The deceptions. The stealings. Whatever may have been a person's lot, that's what put him on that cross. Is that not a picture of the seriousness of sin and the greatness of it, the magnitude of it, the enormity of it? That gives us a glimpse of how one can appreciate the anger of a just God at your sin and mine. It hurts God when you and I sin. Christian friend, when you and I choose to sin, it grieves Him. It bothers Him. He loves us so that He does not want us to make those foolish, hurtful choices. He knows it isn't good for us. Ephesians Chapter 4, verse 30 describes how that your sin in mind grieves the Holy Spirit. I hope you and I will think about that when we begin to at least contemplate or ponder our lust leading to sin. Stop a moment and realize, when I do this, if I choose to do this, it's going to hurt God. That kind of consideration leads us to this next one. In Romans 12, verse 19... We have another word used in reference to this wonderful God that we serve. You may remember that on this occasion, there's this scenario presented. There were those who raised a point about taking vengeance upon somebody else. This fellow, look what he did to me. Ought not I get even? Ought not I take opportunity, in fact, to do to him what he did to me? Paul said, my friend, don't do it. Rather, treat him the way that you wish he had treated you. In so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head, and you'll follow this mantra, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. You let God take care of it. If that individual chooses to live in this way, finally dying in that way, then let God take care of the absolute and perfect judgment. You don't have the need or perhaps the wisdom to do it. But it's that word vengeance. You know, often you and I, when we think of taking revenge, well, we keep that separate and apart from us, and well, we should. But who here will take vengeance? The text says God will. I, notice the pronoun I, he said, Romans twelve nineteen. I will repay. When you and I add this following passage to it, we've now come to Revelation. Let's start in Revelation 6. Near the close of that chapter, one by one, the seals. Remember the seven-sealed book and they're opened. And we have this fantastic picture of God's judgment upon that old Roman Empire. As we arrive at the sixth seal, however, we have this dramatic presentation. You'll notice that there's a great presentation of God's powerful might against some. And the text says... The great day of His wrath is come. Who shall be able to stand? I confess to you that sends chills over me. 
to think about an instance, a situation in which the great day... Now notice, we've already read about many days of His wrath. And yet, the great day of His wrath has come. Who shall be able to stand? As you transition forward in that book, you arrive at chapter 19, verse number 20. Now that's a little bit further along in the reading that was read earlier today in verse 15. But I'd like to ask you to listen to verse 20 of Revelation 19. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. What a frightening scene. What an absolutely overwhelming scene. Here is a picture. Now, you and I will notice that the beast, that's the devil. In fact, we appreciate that's really one of the emissaries of the devil. That old dragon, we'll read the next chapter, he himself is cast into that lake. But these false teachers, these false prophets, they are going to be cast into this lake. Someone might ask, does that sound fair? For God to do this to someone, notice again, verse 15 had pointed out, this will be a presentation of the fierceness of His wrath. I've asked you to consider it like this. What we're discussing in a verse like this one is not merely the wrath of man. Your wrath or mine can sometimes be misdirected. Have you ever been angry at someone and later found out that the thing you thought they did... Either they didn't or their way of thinking at least made that reasonable. Well, maybe we've all been there. God's wrath will be fierce and it'll be purely fierce. There's reason for it. These have chosen to ignore Him. They've chosen to be disobedient to Him. They've chosen to deceive others in some cases. They have chosen to willfully thumb their nose at the sacrifice of Christ. May I submit to you, God will never look lightly upon anyone who looks with triviality upon the death of His Son. Jesus did not die in vain. He did not die to be reviled by those who in essence will ultimately be saved somehow without Him. That cannot happen. His death is such that God's pure vengeance will then in fierceness be taken. You and I then should begin to ask ourselves an observation like this one. Hell, as I've stated at the top of this slide, according to the presentation of God's pure book, it is the final reality of God's wrath. In other words, we have seen episodes of God's wrath presented at times in the Old Testament and sometimes in the New. But the final presentation, the absolute fierceness, that is reserved for one final time. And this one's going to last forever. You know, those Old Testament examples, there was a time the Babylonian captivity ended. And there was a time in Judges when God's people came out of that oppression, but it'll never be so with hell. It'll never end. His wrath will flame the fires and stoke the fires of hell eternally. Isn't it interesting then to look at some of those quick verses? 
the principles found near the top of that slide and those that emanate in the things afterward. Hell, you see, is not merely a thing in wrath. It is God's wrath. It's God's wrath. Didn't Jesus say in Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, I'm telling you who to fear. Don't fear them that can kill the body, but there's no more they can do. Fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. Hell is a fierceness of God's wrath, and it's the final presentation of it. I think every one of us can then thank God for the Bible's teaching on hell. We can know about it now so we can avoid it. We can know about it now so that we can live in such a way that it'll never be experienced by us. And that's one of the greatest considerations in Revelation 20. The second death, this place called hell, it's not reserved for those who've been born twice. It's only reserved for those who've been born once. If you've been born in the words that Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again, born of water and the Spirit. Those who enjoy that birth and live faithfully to it, they'll never know about this fierceness of God's wrath because it's not reserved for them. Every one of us then has every right, as you appreciate the bottom of that slide, to note that this place called hell not only is described as eternal, but it's eternal fire. Mark 9, verses 43 and following. It's a place where the worm never dies. It's a place you see of outer darkness, Matthew 25, 30. It's a place that is just worse than awful. It's the place of the fierceness of God's wrath. May none of us so live as that we're going to head there. It's time then in earnestness for every one of us to ask, How am I living? If I die this afternoon, what will be God's sentence of judgment? Is it that place? Remember, it's the fierceness of God's wrath, Revelation 19.15. Oh, I hope it will not be that way for any of us. Let's conclude our lesson. Hell is the place of the fierceness of God's wrath. May you and I live with wisdom May we live with direction. May we live overwhelmed by the great sense of what is offered through Christ, His blood. The Bible from cover to cover shows us that when God does become angry and His fire is hot, it doesn't work out well for those who are the subjects of it. How easily could that be said concerning eternal hell? Heaven is such a grand place, pure, Sweet, perfect, sinless. It's where God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are going to be there. And goodness shall be known perpetually because we're in the presence of absolute goodness. If you think about hell as the place where everything, even remotely related to the goodness of God, is absent, that gives us at least an image of what that place is like. May you and I live with wisdom and avoid this place of the fierceness of God's wrath. The invitation is extended. God's calling you. He's calling you and me through the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 If there's anyone in the audience today, and maybe upon quick reflection of this fierceness of God's wrath, you sense that all isn't well and you want to make it right, 
please don't delay. Don't procrastinate. Don't wait. Don't give the devil another chance to give you a supposed reason because there is no good reason. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing this hymn of encouragement. If you've never become a Christian, why not today? Jesus said you've got to believe in Him with all your heart. Repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. And we would delight to assist you in that today. If you've become a Christian though, and you have known the joy and the power and the benefit of living hand in hand with Him, but that can't be said today, and you know it. You know it. You're living in a way that is shameful, at least in comparison to the Bible. You've brought disgrace on what Jesus stands for. You know you don't have to stay that way. 2 Peter 2, verses 18 to 20, tell about coming back. And that's what you have to do. Humble yourself. Just understand that you've made those mistakes, but repent of them. Come back to the life that the Lord wants you to live. He'll welcome you back with loving, open arms. And also want to encourage you today, if we can do that, it'd be our privilege as well. In any of that, any way we can help, we'd like to do it while together we stand and while we sing.